it would seem that thin skin is a prominent major for today's college students. Kirby Anderson talks about the coddling of the American mind, here on Probe. This week we're going to talk about what is happening on college campuses and even focus on why it is happening. Much of the material is taken from the book The Coddling of the American Mind. Greg Lukianoff was trying to solve a puzzle and sat down with Jonathan Haidt. Greg was the First Amendment lawyer working with Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and he was trying to figure out why students, who used to support free speech on campus, were now working to prevent speakers from coming on campus and triggered by words or phrases used by professors. Greg also noticed something else. He has suffered from bouts of depression and noticed that some striking similarities with some of the comments by students. He found in his treatment that sometimes he and others would engage in catastrophizing and assume the worst outcome. He was seeing these distorted and irrational thought patterns in students. After a lengthy discussion, they decided to write an article about it for The Atlantic with the title, Arguing Towards Misery, How Campuses Teach Cognitive Distortions. The editor suggested a more provocative title, The Coddling of the American Mind. The piece from The Atlantic was one of the most viewed articles of all time and was then expanded into this book. That book used the same title, The Coddling of the American Mind. Jonathan was on Point of View last year to talk about the book, and the authors believe that these significant psychological changes that have taken place in the minds of students explain much of the campus insanity we see on campus today. They point out that two terms rose from obscurity into common campus parlance. Microaggressions are small actions or word choices that are now thought of as a kind of violence. Trigger warnings are an alert the professors now must use if they may be discussing a topic that might generate a strong emotional response. Now, before we talk about some of the insights in the book, it is worth mentioning that though there is a psychological component to all of this insanity, there's also an ideological component. When the article original appeared, Heather McDonald asked, if risk-averse child-rearing is merely the source of the problem, for example, why aren't heterosexual white males demanding safe spaces? They all have the same sort of parents who probably coddled many of them. It would probably be best to say that the mixture of psychological deficits along with liberal progressive ideological ideas promoted on campus have given us the insanity we see today. We've had liberal teaching on campuses for a century, but the problem has become worse in the last decade because of the psychological issues described in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. This has been Probe with your host, Kirby Anderson. Get your free copy of Kirby's transcript, The Coddling of the American Mind, at probe.org. Then join us next time, here on Probe. The book can easily be summarized in three untruths that are the first three chapters of the book. The first is the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Now Nietzsche's original aphorism was, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. The younger generation has turned this idea on its head. It is true that some things are fragile, like China teacups, while other things are resilient that can withstand shocks. But they also notice that some things are anti-fragile. In other words, they actually require stressors and challenges to grow. Our muscles are like that. Our immune system is like that. And university education is supposed to be like that. Students are supposed to be challenged by new ideas not locked away in safe spaces.
Unfortunately, most young people have been protected by a culture that promotes what they refer to as safetyism. It has become a cult of safety that is obsessed with eliminating threats, whether real or imagined, to the point where fragility becomes expected and routine. And while this is true for the millennial generation, also called Generation Y, it is even truer for the iGen generation, also called Generation Z, who are even more obsessed with safety. Part of the problem in these untruths is what they call concept creep. Safety used to mean to be safe from physical threats, but that is expanded to the idea that safety also must mean emotional comfort. In order to provide that comfort, professors and students a few years ago introduced the idea of creating safe spaces for students. And in order to keep those students emotionally safe in the classroom, professors must now issue trigger warnings so that students don't experience trauma during a classroom lecture or discussion. The second untruth is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. You can get yourself in some difficult circumstances quickly if you always trust your emotions. It is easy in this world to get frustrated, discouraged, and even depressed. Psychologists have found that certain patients can get themselves caught in a feedback loop in which irrational negative beliefs cause powerful negative feelings. We're seeing that on college campuses today. Psychologists describe the cognitive triad of depression. These are, I'm no good, my world is bleak, and my future is hopeless. Psychologists have effective ways of helping someone break from disempowering feedback cycles such as these, but few adults, parents, professors, administrators are working to correct those mistaken ideas. So tomorrow we'll continue to look at these other intrusions that are the major reason we see the insanity on college campuses today. In the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, the authors describe three untruths that explain why we see such insanity on college campuses. Yesterday, we talked about the untruth of fragility and the untruth that you should always trust your emotions. In a college classroom, students are apt to make some sweeping generalization or engage in simplistic labeling of the lecture or reading material. In that case, we would hope that a professor would move the discussion by asking questions or even challenging the assertion. Instead, many professors and colleges go along with the student comments. In fact, many even argue that any perceived slight adds up to what are called microaggressions. In many cases, slights may be unintentional and actually wholly formed from the listener's interpretation. Here's how it develops. First, you prevent certain topics from being discussed in class. Next, you prevent certain speakers from coming to campus because they might present a perspective that aggrieved students believe should not be discussed. In the book is a chart illustrating how many speakers have been disinvited from universities. Five years ago, the line jumps up significantly. The third untruth follows from that assumption. It is the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. The authors argue that the human mind is prepared for tribalism. They even provide psychological research demonstrating that. But that doesn't mean we have to live that way. In fact, conditions in society can turn tribalism up, down, or off. Certain conflicts can turn tribalism up and make them more attentive to signs about which team the person may be on. Peace and prosperity usually turn tribalism down. Unfortunately, in the university community, distinctions between groups are not downplayed, but emphasized. Distinctions defined by race, gender, and sexual preference are given prominence. Mix that with identity politics that we see in society, and you generate the conflict we see almost every day in America. The authors make an important distinction between two kinds of identity politics. 
Martin Luther King Jr. epitomized what could be called common humanity identity politics. He addressed the evil of racism by appealing to the shared morals of Americans using the unifying language of religion. That is different from what we find on college campuses today that could be called common enemy identity politics. It attempts to identify a common enemy as a way to enlarge and motivate your tribe. The slogan sounds like this. Our battle for identity and survival is a battle between good people and bad people. We're the good guys and need to defeat the bad guys. One good example of how these untruths play out can be found in what happened on a college campus in Olympia, Washington. The entire story is described in Chapter 5, but also featured prominently in the opening chapter of the book No Safe Spaces and in the movie with the same title. Just a few years ago, Evergreen State College was probably best known as the alma mater for rapper Macklemore and Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons. That all changed with an email biology professor Brett Weinstein sent. In the past, the school had a tradition known as the National Day of Absence. Usually, minority faculty and students leave the campus for a day to make a statement. But in 2017, the college wanted to change things and wanted white students and faculty to stay away from campus. Professor Weinstein argued in an email that there's a difference between letting people be absent and telling people to go away. And he added that he would show up for work. When he did, he was confronted by a mob of students. When the administration tried to appease the demonstrators, things got worse. Weinstein has described himself as a political progressive and left-leaning libertarian, but his liberal commitments did not protect him from the student mob. The campus police warned him about the potential danger. The next morning, as he rode his bike into town, he saw protesters poised along his route, tapping into their phones. He rode to the campus police department and was abruptly told, you're not safe on campus and you're not safe anywhere in town on your bicycle. Weinstein and his wife eventually resigned and finally received a financial settlement from the university. You know, the evergreen students and faculty displayed each of the three great untruths. The untruth of fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, came from a faculty member who supported the protesters and addressed some of the faculty colleagues in an angry monologue. She warned, I'm too tired. This blank is literally going to kill me. A student at a large town meeting verbalized her anxiety and illustrated the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. She expressed, I want to cry. I can't tell you how fast my heart is beating. I'm shaking in my boots. And the whole episode illustrates the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. The students and faculty engaged in common enemy identity politics by labeling a politically progressive college and liberal professors examples of white supremacy. One student who refused to join the protest later testified to the college trustees, if you offer any kind of alternative viewpoint, you're the enemy. So what can be done? Tomorrow we'll talk about possible solutions. The book, Coddling of the American Mind, identifies many disturbing trends on college campuses that are beginning to spill over into society. What can be done to stem the tide? Obviously, the long-term solution to the insanity on campus and in society is to pray for revival in the church and spiritual awakening in America, but there are some practical things that can be done immediately. First, college administrators must get control of their campus. The riots at some of these universities resulted in violence and property destruction. Often the campus police and even the local police failed to take action. Sadly, the university administration rarely took action afterwards.
Some form of deterrence would have prevented future actions on the University of California Berkeley campus. Instead, the inaction established a precedent that likely allowed the conflict at Middlebury College. Students not only shut down the lecture, but they assaulted one of the campus professors. Once again, no significant action was taken against the students and outside agitators. The problem will get worse if there's no deterrence. Second, professors must get control of their classrooms. Students cannot be allowed to determine what subject cannot be taught and what topics cannot be discussed. The authors of this book are concerned about the tendency to encourage students to develop extra thin skins just before they enter into the real world. Employers aren't going to care too much about their feelings. Students don't have the right to be not offended. Third, we need to educate this generation about free speech. One poll done by the Brookings Institute discovered that nearly half of all college students believe that hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment. And since many students label just about anything they don't like as hate speech, you can see why we have this behavior on college campuses. More than half of college students think they have a right to shout down a speaker with whom they disagree, and a smaller percentage of college students even think it's acceptable to use violence to prevent a speaker from speaking on campus. Finally, adults need to make their voice heard. We pay for public universities through our tax dollars. Parents send their kids off to some of these schools. We should not tolerate the insanity taking place on many college campuses today. You know, the authors have identified certain concerns that colleges and universities need to address that remind us how hostile the academic world has become, not only to traditional Christian values, but to mere common sense. We need to pray for what is taking place in the college environment.